so to cover like my rent, my car payment, my cell phone bill, all those things, I was working full time up until like two and a half years ago. I mean, we were a, a multi-million dollar company before I quit my job. And it's because I was running it so lean and part-time. I had systemized so much. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned in growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn the advantages and disadvantages of finding product market fit when you are the ideal customer, why looking to replicate the biggest players in your space may mislead you, and why this entrepreneur waited two and a half years to quit his day job despite having a multi-million dollar company. Before we get into our show, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the Shopify App Store. Shopify apps help you easily customize and add features to your store to make it your own. The App Store hosts over 4,000 apps built specifically for Shopify businesses. Shopify developers all over the world built these apps to help you save time and unlock a range of new features, from showing your Instagram feed on your store to offering loyalty rewards and more. Check out shopify.com slash app store for the latest Shopify apps. Today I'm joined by Rock Pilon from Gym Reapers. Gym Reapers sells premium fitness equipment and apparel for athletes, enthusiasts, and gym goers, and was started in 2014 and based out of Boise, Idaho. Welcome, Rock. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so you uh, bootstrapped this business from the ground up when you were only 19? Yeah, yeah. So um, just had a huge passion for fitness, weightlifting, and was seeing the e-commerce you know, shift happening and um, direct to consumer models with obviously Shopify. And I, I wanted to figure out how to get into it and um, didn't have any really real resources to start. And uh, yeah, started, started when I was 19. That's amazing. And did you know at the time, it sounded like you were passionate about, about the kind of industry, passionate about the, the sport and the hobby, but was it, did you have an idea like what kind of products you wanted to offer at the time? Yeah, it's funny. I uh, I got into powerlifting and weightlifting when I was like 14 and uh, just kind of fell in love with with um, certain brands that have been around for years like uh, Animal Pack, uh, Universal Nutrition, um, and Bodybuilding.com is actually based in Boise, Idaho. And this is back in like 2011, 2012, um, when, when I was really starting to become aware of these brands and what they were doing. And um, I ended up, you know, just finding out over time, um, this is really where I want to focus and do something in. And having created the, the brand name Jim Reapers, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. And I, I had just actually had my tattoo artist mock up a design uh, and just screen printed shirts and started flipping them out of my trunk. Um, and I actually, I was working at BBCom and I, I was kind of realizing like, hey, nobody's really paying attention to equipment. And through my powerlifting, weightlifting and history, I, I, I was aware of weightlifting belts, knee sleeves, wrist straps, and, and products that I was using in the gym. I just wasn't using my brand. Um, and, and I kind of, over time, came to the realization, took took a few years, but came to the realization I should merge these two things. And um, that's kind of where, where, uh, where the direction that uh, got planted. Yeah. And given that your age and that you are kind of already around the, the industry, what, did you ever worry about like, man, I'm not sure if I can, not necessarily can I pull this off, but like there's probably a lot of competition and a lot of companies that could just, you know, decide overnight to move into the space that you, you thought there was an opportunity. Like were there those thoughts that were popping up? Absolutely. I think initially, I think what took me so long to get into the equipment market um, cause I kept trying to force apparel and, and my, the problem there was I, I didn't understand margins. I was making a shirt for, you know, seven, $8 cause I didn't have good MOQs and I was selling it for 20 and, you know, after ad spend cost overhead, you're not really turning a profit to be able to reinvest. And when I looked at other segments of the market in, in weightlifting and fitness, um, specifically like, you know, you look at the, the industry leaders in, um, weightlifting equipment and to me, it was like looking, looking at Goliath and thinking, how am I going to be able to compete and, and actually like get, get something sustainable? And so it deterred me for a long time. I, I, over time, eventually, it was just like, I don't really have another option. You know, I, I didn't have um, a ton of resources. I, I couldn't afford to go to college. And I was like, my only option is to really just try and um, I knew one of my unique like 
abilities with this specifically was I knew the industry so well. Um, I knew what a good like knee sleeve was and I knew like how the stitching should be and the materials. And so that was kind of my edge to be able to compete on the platform of these bigger brands. That makes sense. So I think you said something that was really important here, which is um, forcing a specific kind of idea about what kind of business you should run. And initially it was this idea like forcing apparel. And I think that, that there, there's that kind of um, story or um, storyline maybe that a lot of entrepreneurs have about I want my company to be this certain way. I want to offer these kind of products, this kind of product line, and it has to be this way and like unwavering from that that decision. Talk to us about like how you approached it back then and maybe even how you approach it today when you kind of have this forced vision and you feel like you got to carry it out exactly the way you have in your head. Totally. Yeah. No, you know, I think every kid wants to have a clothing line. I think it's like, uh, if you're an entrepreneur, initially you kind of think, Oh, I could just start a clothing line. Mm. And the reality of clothing, the apparel industry, the marketing behind it, um, it, very few brands truly build, um, a sustainable clothing line. And my belief and thought process initially for the first two years, I was looking at what I wanted. I wasn't looking at what the market needs. And as I, one of the good books for this is MJ DeMarco's The Millionaire Fastlane. And after reading that book, he talks about how books make sense. So your your pro, your or your, a good product makes sense. You need to have um, like a good barrier to entry. You need to have um, market need. You need to have the right timing, just different factors, right? That um, the acronym is sense. And what ended up happening was after reading these things and learning more about margins, um, I was working in a business for this guy who had a huge business. He was teaching me about profit and loss state statements, gross margins, and really just the finance behind business. And I was able to take the brand name and the concept I had, because the concept was good, and apply it over a business model that would work. And it wasn't that I, you kind of have to let that ego go of like, this is the way I want it to be. And you have to pivot and move with where the market is and what it needs. And like today, you know, we would be known for our premium equipment, like the quality, the, the, um, the appearance, all those things factor in, but now we're starting to produce more apparel because our market now is asking for it. They need it. And so that shift has happened, but we, it took, I mean, we're, I'm in year seven now, almost eight years. So that, that time frame had to occur and we had to start with a different, different product line. Yeah, I was going to say, you've now come back around to offering apparel, but now you have the kind of foundation, the bedrock of your brand and your reputation to kind of launch from, which makes it you know way easier. I think that that's an important thing where a lot of entrepreneurs may look out at the the brands they aspire to be and 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 try to mimic them at their at those brands like mature state, right? Oh, they have, you know, someone might look at Jim Reapers. Oh, they got apparel, so I should start selling apparel first when there's like a kind of series of events that needs to lead up to the ability to sell apparel or sell, you know, whatever it is that, that you're focused on these days. Um, so I think, I think the, the challenge too, is that, you know, it's the way you talk about it is that you are your ideal customer. You are super into this space and you said something, which is that you were too hyper-focused on what you wanted versus what the market needs. And I think that there's this, um, benefit to being your ideal customer, but then also maybe like blinders that, that might come on. So talk to us about how you try to balance that where again, you are in the space, you are the ideal customer, um, and you want to create something that, that you feel like someone like you would need, but then it might not exactly hit the target when you look at the market at large. Like talk to us about like that kind of balance. Yeah. You know, and and it's such a tricky thing, like finding product market fit and, and having the right timing um, is something that I don't want to say you stumble into it or you get lucky. I think there's a little bit of luck involved, but what you, what you mentioned to looking to the biggest guy in your category and saying, Hey, I'm going to do what they're doing. You don't know the unique advantages or the platforms or whatever else they're using that got their product to to create so much revenue or to be so successful. And so what I went back to and what I kind of resort like built my like, I guess, thesis on was what do I need? Like and for me, I had been powerlifting at this point for probably eight years um, competitive, like I was competing um, and my knees were killing me. Um, I had, um, like extreme patella pain and like, I was always looking for like the best knee sleeve. And so I had gone through 
just about everything in the market. Nothing stood out to me in terms of brand. Nothing stood out to me in terms of one. It was all very expensive too. Um, and I, I mean, at this time, I, I like literally, I, I'm making. Um, at that time, I was making like 13 bucks an hour working customer service. So spending $100 on some knee sleeves um, to me is a, a fortune. And so looking at all those factors coming into play, I was able to kind of pick something that one, I needed. I was able to do the research on if other people needed it. Looking at sales volume, Google Trends, um, what are the top three to five brands in this industry um, doing in terms of volume and uh like I guess where it's being produced. Um, like if, if they're manufacturing in-house, what are the odds that I can compete with them there or versus is it imported? Okay. And, and just kind of de- like deducing um, product by product. And I had done other, other ideas and products before. Like, I don't want to make it sound like I came out the gate with uh, a success day one. Um, I started Jim Reapers in 2014 and didn't really launch knee sleeves until late 2016. Um, and that was that, that period I was trying other ideas and, um, I I guess I had deductively analyzed like over time after failure, after failure, you're kind of piecing together, okay, product market fit and, um, being an ideal customer myself, it makes it, it makes it a little bit simpler. Yeah. I was going to say, like, can you talk to about some examples early on or even now today where you think that it's something that you personally want or that you have a hunch that the market wants, but then just based on your research, either by trying to release the product or just like from any kind of um, research that you're doing uh, before creating the product made you realize that, you know what, this is probably is not the right thing to go after. You mean like examples that have failed in the past for me? Yeah, that failed or that, that you just decide not to launch because of your research. Oh, totally. I'll talk about a couple of different products. I had launched a um, supplement company in the past and it was sheerly based off of, I think other people want this product. It was like an anxiety supplement and I had done it with a partner uh, and he brought me the idea and we, we kind of over time molded this idea. And one of the issues was um, market saturation and supplement efficacy. Like it's subjective a lot of the times with, with supplements, especially if you're dealing with um, something performance-based or something like that. So over time, I was able to realize, you know, this product is not built for one, the consumable to like leaving it up to sub, like leaving it subjectively. Like if you put our knee sleeves on today and you start to work out with them, you will, you will feel the difference virtually immediately. Same thing with the support that a belt gives you. I try to not do products that are subjective results because it's easy to stand behind a product that you can tell this is going to work. Um, it's worked for a thousand people before you, and it will work for a thousand people after you. That's one of um, probably the, I wouldn't say the mistake, but the learning lessons that I've gone through. The other is launching products. And I've done this a bunch of times. I seem to not be able to learn the lesson uh, launching products that don't have the right margins and understanding margins so that you can scale a business off of it. It's one thing to sell a product and, you know, create a sale. It's another thing to be able to figure out that you should have a a 40% margin so that you can reallocate the capital into more inventory because your inventory demand will increase if you start to get traction and be able to actually build a business off the back of that. So I would say those two are some of my biggest mistakes that I have to constantly remind myself of when we're moving forward um, in, in new product development and um, new ideas. Yeah, I, I think that's like the, almost like the um, the unspoken other factor that leads to success, right? It's 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 like, can you A, sell the, this product? B, is it, you know, is it something that you can afford to make? But then also like how, the, that margin, like the, the, the gulf between uh, the, the kind of, the, the price you sell it and then the cost that costs you for, to, to acquire that customer. Is this something that, that you, you mentioned that it's still a lesson that you're trying to get yourself to learn, um, but is the data always there? Like what's your process? to determine, um, you know, whether again, if you follow the, follow your, your own advice or not, but like wh- what is, uh, the way that you've been able to determine whether there's enough margin for you to go into a particular product line? I, I think it would work across most brands, but what I try to look for is a 40% margin after product cost, um, and like selling expenses. This is not like not before factoring ad spend or or like, I guess my uh, company overhead, but if I can have a 40% margin, so let's just say I'm selling something for 
Um, I'm, I'm going to do terrible uh, head math right now. So hundred bucks, let's say, maybe, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> but, but let's just say um, for, instead of making a product for $8 and selling it for 20, I don't have the margin in there to incur selling expenses um, that would scale because the $12 that I have selling for 20 and making it for eight, that $12 is going to get sucked up into Facebook ads almost immediately. Uh, there's very rare that you're going to get CPAs that low. But if I had a four, uh, a fifty dollar product that I make for seven dollars, well, now if it costs me twenty five dollars to acquire a customer, I have margin not only allocate to more inventory, but be able to um, scale my business operations. Because a lot of the times people don't understand their margins, so they become a solopreneur. They don't they don't have enough to get out of the business. They work in the business instead of on it, and being conscious of huge margins. And it's not that you have to be huge. You just have to be consistently um, in line with, with your right numbers. Um, some products will be home runs and others might be duds, but, but the home runs sell um, consistently for the duds. Um, just an example, like I might have a, a hero product that sells 10,000 units uh, a month, but then I, I will carry an ancillary product that will maybe has less margin, but it's consistently purchased together as like a package. So those are things you have factor together. Um, but understanding the numbers, I mean, it's essential to getting out of the business and working on it. Mm, that makes sense. And when you when you have an idea for a, a product that you might want to release, um, how do you? I guess the, the two the two. The, how do you how do you decide how to price it? Like, what's your what's your methodology for determining like what's the right price point for a product so that you can determine things like the margin? I think a good calculator for that, like just off like a napkin math, is if you five x it. I would say that's pretty. Um, that's a pretty good standard. And, and this goes for whether you're selling on your website or on Amazon or through, I mean, retail might be a little bit different. Um, we don't do too much retail, but um, 5X. So if, if I'm making a product for 10 bucks, I want to sell it for 50. That's just back of the hand math. Now we, we you asked about like how I underwrite a product, um, similar to how like you underwrite an asset, like, like a real estate asset, you, you'd want to calculate the, um, I'm just going to write it out here. Like you take your MSRP, which yeah, let's say it's 50 bucks. And let's just say you have um, X, like, you know, you have your, you have your fees factored in and those might be um, whether you're using a three PL, whether you have selling expenses, like whether it's with um, everyone incurs selling expenses through their um, Shopify or wherever um, you'd factor that stuff in. And um, then you'd factor your product cost in. And after that point, I try to be almost always around 40. If it's under 30, I'm probably going to move on to the next product. Not to say it's a dead product, but if I'm scaling a business, I need to have products with good margin at the start because that's how I'm going to keep scaling the business. And maybe when we're at scale, let's just say we have, you know, tens of thousands of SKUs. I can come back to those products because I have the market share and the um, brand established so that those lower margin products will move more. Um, but yeah, generally I try to target um, a, around a 40%, 40% margin and, and I'm deducing from the MSRP selling expenses and product cost. Yeah. So it sounds like there are certain advantages that you, some assets that you build up that make it easier to take these or to, to, to have uh, less risky bets than if you were early on. So I want to talk a little bit about the, those early days. I think you t mentioned to us that uh, when you bootstrapped the business, you had about $5,000 saved up to, to invest in it. And I want to talk about, you know, 5,000 is, is, you know, a, a number that I think if someone's like serious about business, they can probably save up to that and, and spend that kind of money just to get a business off the ground. Talk to us about some of the most valuable investments that you made with the, the, the kind of bootstrap money that you kicked the business off with. Definitely. So yeah. And to preface this, I worked, I had a full-time job cause I don't want to make it sound like I had 5,000 and that's all I needed. My $5,000, I was working at bodybuilding.com making 14 bucks an hour, I think at the max. And I was living with my dad in a trailer. Like my dad lost everything in the recession. And um, I, over time, over those next, I, I, I want to say it took me six months to save the 5,000. I was able to um, teach myself how to import and um, 
you know, it's trial and error in practice. And that 5,000 was invested into my first order of knee sleeves. Um, but the whole time, uh, I, I had a full-time job to cover my living expenses. Like I moved out short, like I want to say, I was, I was probably moved out by um, shortly after or, or during that process of that order. Um, so to cover like my rent, uh, my car payment, my cell phone bill, all those things, I was working full-time up until like two and a half years ago. I think we, I mean, we were a, a, a multi-million dollar company before I quit my job. And it's because I was running it so lean and part-time, like I, I had systemized so much. So I, I don't want to make it, and, and what that allowed me to do is I could keep reinvesting all the capital within the business. So that $5,000, when I placed that order for, I, I want to say it was like like 500 or 1,000 knee sleeves, I turned that product over and I took all that capital, um, any profit I had, I used it to continue to make larger and larger orders. And then I moved to the next product. I didn't want to stay stuck on just knee sleeves. So then we made elbow sleeves and then lifting belts and it kind of grew horizontally. Um, but, but, but that process took um, five years, before, four years before I quit my job. And it kind of came to the point where I think our, we were earning in like gross revenue every two weeks, what I was making at my job annually. And I was like, okay, I, I've built enough of a moat. My business can pay me. It can reinvest in itself at a known rate and it can sustain all its existing expenses. And I think those are the three things your business needs to be able to do before you can like um, step out, of, step out of your job. And that just allows like a peace of mind. It allows you to keep reinvesting and, once it's at that scale, then you you obviously have your systems and your processes down um, and you know your numbers. So there's no guesswork. It's not like I have to hope that I have sales. Um, it's significantly more work though. My day-to-day, I would wake up at, I don't know, seven, work from eight to five, hit the gym from like six to seven thirty eight. Uh, if I had night school, I would go to, I, I got my degree during this time. And then I would work on gym reapers from like, eight to one. So, and I did that delusionally for like three and a half, four years. Um, but that's what it took to get to this, to this scale. Um, and so I don't want to make it sound like I just started with five grand. I do think you can start with 5,000 and where I think you should put that money is inventory. Cause if you don't have it, you can't sell it. Yeah. So I feel like, yeah, multi-million dollar brand before you uh, quit your job. And was this because you just felt like you needed to feed this machine so much that everything had to go back into it? Was there a part of you that felt like uh, still kind of unsure if things would take off? Like what's the the kind of driver behind, um, you know, basically waiting before you take that leap? Because I think other people are out there with the same either because they are risk averse maybe where they don't want to jump in right away. Like talk to us about like what, how you made the decision to kind of wait uh, much longer. I would say that than most people before jumping in full time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's multiple factors. Um, one, you know, watching my dad kind of lose everything through the recession. He had one stream of income um, when you're in the lumber housing market in 2008, that is the wrong industry to be in. Um, so watching that happen, I think put a level of understanding that, um, good markets don't always last. You never know what's around the corner. Like only the paranoid survive. Um, I think is a famous business saying, and that, that rings in my head all the time. I had met a mentor, um, shortly after leaving BBCom. I, I left BBCom. Uh, around that time. And he had kind of beat it into me that you need to um, have those three factors in your business. You need to be um, risk averse, but also aggressive with growing your business. You need to understand your numbers. He had built a massive self-storage empire. Uh, his name's AJ Osborne. And, you know, he, today I think it's, it's probably hundreds and hundreds of millions of self-storage. And I would work with him and he had kind of shown me um, like kind of the finance behind business. And I, I mean, I, I was with those guys for three years. That's where I worked full time while I was building gym reapers and being around those guys, it kind of beat into me the level of, um, I guess, business acumen that you need to operate from to be able to sustain and build, um, 
a business that endures uh, recessions, endures bad times, uh, you know, which we kind of saw at the, at the start of COVID and those, those, those factors that could kind of protect you. And um, also I was able to, I have interests in real estate. So I've been buy, investing in buying real estate, starting with like house hacking a duplex and kind of repeating doing that over the years. And I needed the bank financing as well um, to, to uh, which really is difficult to get when you're a self-funded entrepreneur and you're, you're only making income off your business having the job that um, shows a W2 consistently made it way easier to walk into a bank and get um, home like bank loans. Uh, and I was able to build a small, uh, like a portfolio of real estate on the side um, working there. And it also allowed me to just kind of get a business line of credit going. And we don't really tap a line of credit. We, we've really grown off no credit, but it was something beat into me. It's like, Hey, you need to have that lined up. Cause when you need it, you can never get it. And when you don't need it, it's always available. So it's like establishing those relationships and um, being, being risk averse and, and thinking what's around the corner is kind of what keeps you um, alive and being able to grow. Yeah. So, so can you talk more about some of those measures that you put in place that you mentioned kind of beat into you to make sure that you built a, you know, recession proof business, a business that can withstand kind of downturns in the kind of larger economy? Like, were there certain things that, that you put in place that, that maybe helped you during the, the beginning of, of COVID or during any other kind of time in your, in your, in your journey that you were thankful that you put the kind of insurance or the investment into? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think one, I think this is super common when you start to see a little bit of success. Um, you know, let's just say you're, you make up, you're making a hundred thousand dollars a month in revenue. If you're a, if you're new to like new to this and you, you've never made that kind of money before and it's, it's gross revenue. So you have your, obviously your, your business expenses running through it. The initial thought is like Lambo dreams. Let's go get a new car. Let's go, mm. you know, spend, spend, spend. And I think what was beat into me is that um, you need to create and harvest assets and um, liabilities are, are something that you shouldn't even look at. You know, if you want to buy a nice car, buy it cash. But when you're, when you have enough cash to buy a nice car like that, you'll probably just put it into investments because you understand the power of a dollar. I know the cost of a dollar spent outside of my business versus inside of it. And so I would never go buy a Lamborghini and if you have those habits when you're making 30 grand a month in revenue, a hundred grand a month or 2 million a month in revenue, it, it scales in proportion. And so your business benefits proportionally. I think that was one of the largest things because it would be so easy to go buy a, a Rolex the second you see success, but that Rolex is your next PO. It's your next product. It's your next employee. Um, the next thing is just investing back into the brand. I think um, systems, most companies, um, have trouble scaling because they never develop inventory management systems um, or, or hire the right people to manage their inventory. And in brands that are CPG based where they're, they're it's inventory in inventory out investing in the right system, um, which today we use bright Pearl um, and they've done extremely well to help us scale. Um, it's, it's not a cheap system. It's, it needs people to operate and it's constantly, um, you know, in and out flows uh, and, and investing into those types of systems has enabled us to um, scale and endure so that when we're trying to forecast or see what's going on, it's not like we're, there's no guesswork in the business. And sometimes I think it's easy to place a PO based off a guess, but you don't really realize the cost of your capital being sucked into inventory versus um, being allocated somewhere else in the business that would be better. So uh, fundamentally, like investing into your inventory management systems, um, Understanding your numbers, I think, is uh, like paramount for success. You, you'll you'll struggle to scale. You can't really. Um, I mean, most people. I think when I first started, I didn't really care about the numbers because it's not the exciting part. It's not the sales. But the more you kind of realize um, how much gross margin matters, what your operating expenses are, uh, what your net income should be. Like, if you have a high net income, you should be investing back. Like percentage ratio, you should be investing back into your business. And your net income wants to range between like, you probably want to be around 15 to 20%, not 30%. It, these numbers are speaking to you, but if you don't know how to read them, um, you're not really going to know those things to be able to scale, to be recession-proof. If you have high operating expenses and you're paying yourself way too much uh, and you're paying too much in tax because you could be um, 
not to get too much in the weeds, but you could be hiring more people, lowering your QBI deduction, because right, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. Low, by, by hiring more people, your QBI deduction would be reduced and you would get that benefit. So like there's little factors that you just don't realize until you're in it. And if you're not paying attention, those it's like it's kind of like a death by a thousand cuts. And those things get propelled really quickly in bad times. Um, and you could kind of see that at the start of COVID. I think the government did a good job of, you know, stimulating and, and a decent job to kind of keep everybody moving. Um, but, but you never know what's around the corner. Yeah. And you, you had mentioned that there was a point early on where you just didn't care about the numbers. They weren't the sexy, they weren't the exciting things and the, the nuances weren't, weren't, weren't as fun. And at some point you started caring more about these things and seeing how, uh, to, to a, no numbers, a, how to, how to kind of, uh, uh, what levers to pull to adjust certain numbers, certain, certain, um, figures. I think there's a, a period where if you did it too early, it'd be kind of premature optimization where you're spending too much time building a system when you haven't, you know, made a sale yet. Uh, talk to us about like how you knew, okay, th- this is the right time. And for any other kind of listeners out there, well, at what point do, should they, uh, you know, not just be focused on driving raw sales and actually focus more on how to get this thing more lean? Totally. Well, so I think part of it is that I, it's not that I didn't, I didn't realize the importance of numbers because I, one, it's amazing to just get your first sale. I remember like getting the first sale and being like, oh my gosh, this is going to work. But the the hard part, especially if you don't have the staff, like today we have in-house accounting, we have outside accounting as well, um, so that I'm constantly getting fed numbers daily, um, weekly, and monthly. And we're constantly planning ahead. When you start, I remember doing this, I would have to go into QuickBooks or Xero um, and do all my own um, bookkeeping, do all my own um, like inventory accounting, PO placing, and just aligning all my expenses. And that is like, in my, to me, that just like is the one thing I want to procrastinate on. Like I do not want to do that work. And so one of the first things I did was I hired an outside accounting firm that kind of does it specifically for e-commerce businesses. And, you know, I paid them, I don't know, somewhere between 300 to $800 a month. And what they did, and sure, that seems like a lot at the time, right? And this is why you you keep your day job so that you can, you know, fork that over. But then what they're doing is they're able to do your numbers for you. And then you can start to see inside your business and you should be studying like a profit loss statement. And there's good videos on YouTube to, to learn more about that. But then you can start to look at your business and say, well, hold on. I have 10 products and only two of them are making uh, actual revenue and sales. And then maybe that might lead you down the line to kill off other products that you thought were doing well. It might cause you to go and create new products that um, are in line with the ones that are successful. Like you can start to deductively analyze as long as you understand your business, where, um, where the numbers drive your next business decisions. And it's better to start that when you're small because it's not complex. Like if you went and looked at like the public financial records of, of whatever public company out there, it, one, it's going to be too boring. And two, you're not going to be able to just really understand the movement of what's going on. But if you're making $300,000, dollars dollars $500,000 in revenue per year, you can see where every dollar in the business goes. And let's just say your, your net income is super high. So you're, you're on $500,000 in revenue. You're, you're making $200,000, $250,000. Well, if you go and hire um, an e-commerce manager or somebody to help with ops, for 50,000 a year, your net income's not disappearing, right? But but now you're getting somebody else to come on board eight hours a day or whatever work structure you want to build, or, or you go contract an agency, um, but you, you're getting that help on your business. And if you know what drives your revenue and drives your sales, that's where I would target that help. And that's how you can start to scale. Um, so just, just understanding your numbers early on um, makes it easier. So now as it scales today, um, when we have, like, we can notice, I mean, we get pretty granular with, um, not only forecasting, um, but just tax planning, uh, new product development, um, just, just all these factors are playing into the P and L, um, both today, a year from now, two years from now, and beyond that, we're, we're, we're kind of just taking it, um, just because things can move so quickly, but we can, we can live in today thinking about tomorrow. And it's not like a question of, I wonder if I'm profitable or 
um, I, I wonder when I'll be able to pay myself. Like th- these things shouldn't be questions. They should be things that you're planned towards. Mm. Are, are there certain questions that you do ask that you wish you could just see on a dashboard that you, you haven't captured yet? Questions I wish I could ask. Um, one of the things that's been the hardest for us, and I recently, we recently brought uh, a CPA in house and she's amazing. Um, so I've been able to kind of forecast this a bit closer, but one of the things that I would struggle with is like the impact of if my new product is going to work or not. And what the opportunity cost of those dollars in that new product would be versus in another product, right? It's like everything's opportunity cost. And what you're trying to do is identify the highest ROI so that you can keep scaling your brand and be competitive. And what we've been able to do, especially as the company's scaled, we have um, 20, 21 employees here soon. Um, so as it's scaled, not only does the product um, opportunity costs increase, but I got to know my overhead, um, what benefits we're offering, our space requirements, all these things are factoring in. And I never could forecast that. Like I could never see um, what X amount of SKUs or X amount of sales per day would cause to our um, overhead and down. And today there's margins of error, but we're able to see pretty accurately at what level of growth, what requirements will be needed. And we can plan ahead, plan backwards and make adjustments um, almost in real time. And that's just done through Excel and, and just tons of uh, Excel spreadsheets. But that's that's probably been the hardest thing to, to forecast. Obviously, I'd love to be able to, to gauge the success of a product uh, before it's launched, but those things kind of just come down to what the market looks like. Hey. Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about the the what you mentioned earlier about how you can target the help that or target area that needs help, and then hire specifically for it. What what was that the first hire that you made? Like, what 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 did you see in the business that made you realize you know I need to hire someone or a team to help with this particular function? Sure. Yeah. With with it happened in a couple of phases with initially as we were scaling, I, uh, I was working quite a bit with agencies. Um, you know, this is, this is how I was able to work full time. Um, I had contracted a digital marketing agency and I was able to get the services, um, for uh, like a monthly flat rate, uh, to do Google, Facebook and all that stuff. And that's how we really started to scale. Um, but my first in-house hire, I guess, <laughs> Yeah, it happened in phases. So I hired my sister um, and she's been with me from the get-go and she was kind of helping me pack, do photography. Um, today, she's our lead designer. And uh, I mean, she does like three jobs, but lead designer, photographer, she's a very create, creative person. And um, she's a huge help. But my first like official outside hire that was in-house was our e-commerce manager. And I think this was the right move. Um, and the reason I like I went there is I took my daily schedule and like literally I just wrote this out on like a, a notepad and I went from like 8 a.m. to you know, whatever time I stopped working like 6 p.m. 7 p.m. and I would like track what I was doing every um every hour every 30 minutes and I just went down the list and a lot of my time what I was either spent shipping products commute and communicating with suppliers or it was spent working on our website and like trying to get the email marketing going trying to get more SEO stuff done, get our listings up, get, you know, managing that website process. And so when I hired um, our e-commerce manager, I kind of put him in charge of basically like Shopify plus Clavio plus like anything owned media. Um, and it was, it was rough at the start. Like we were, it was daily just grinds trying to, trying to implement systems, implement procedures, teaching, teaching him, um, because it is a fringe subject that most people don't really get to start their career with. Um, and over time he's gotten way better and better and better. And he's, he's, he's a beast now. And we have these systems that have, um, evolved, but the e-commerce manager got me out of the day to day of working on the, like in the business as the guy doing it. And then I could focus like on it. And that was when like I, now I got my sales problem fixed. Now I got to get my inventory problem fixed. And where I talked about managing inventory, uh, the next hire uh, was one, a shipper, like a guy come in and help with the warehouse and then our ops manager. 
Now, now when you when you did hire the, the e-commerce manager, how long did it take before you could truly kind of offboard those items that that you had listed down on that notepad? Like, what was the the, the length and process for onboarding someone new and delegating all your tasks out? His his role was probably the most difficult. He came into no structure. The company was being run in my head, and I had no SOPs created. He so he his was the most challenging to teach. And it was really like trial and error, like jump off the cliff and build on your way down. He was able to, I kind of put him into Shopify day one and said, tinker around. And then each initiative would come up like, okay, hey, we need to, I'm just trying to think of one of the early ones. We implemented Sezzle, um, which is uh, the buy now, pay later. And this is prior to everybody having buy now, pay later. And so his, like one of his tasks would be, hey, like gets like, check them all out, Klarna, uh, Afterpay, all of them. And so he did calls with all of them. And this is just like one day, right? And he's discerning and he brings me the result of what he thinks would be best. I sit down with them and we make a decision and then we might have a product launch. So he's working on listings and it's kind of like trial by fire. And if he has questions, he's sitting right next to me. We have an open office kind of layout so that I don't like the segmentation and just like office by office. I liked everybody to be... Um, open. And so it's like the constant communication, everything moves faster. There's less, uh, I don't like the bureaucracy of like an office layout. So everything moves quick. And he was able to just ask questions and he kind of taught himself over time. uh, And and there was no no formal training. Okay. Awesome. Uh, Now, one thing you mentioned earlier was about how, if there was something that you could foresee based on the data you would, you know, love to have. And you mentioned about knowing what products will be successful. So your business has grown significantly since the the start of, of, you know, uh, your, your launch with uh, trying apparel at first. Now many, many more product lines. Talk to us about how uh, you go about the product development process. Like what is the process that you put into it to a decide this is worth investing in and like what happens after that decision? That's a good question. We, we look at the needs of our target demographics. So if you look at the, for us, there, it's kind of like two different, two businesses, right? We have our equipment and then we have our apparel um, for equipment. We will look at powerlifting, weightlifting, like Olympic lifting, uh, bodybuilding, CrossFit, uh, strongman training, and um, just like, just normal fitness enthusiasts. And then into apparel, we'll look at like men's, women's and what's trending. And each, I guess, segment has its own um, product needs. So, so certain strong men will use certain equip, equipment that is niche to their uh, sport and across, across different categories. And we will determine if that's a market we want to enter right now, you know, analyzing by the numbers and also by the market and what's going on if that's something we want to get into and um, we're, we're planning, we have a, a, like a product sync chart that kind of lays out the year so that we could see where things are fitting um, and kind of keep our buying and planning ahead. And we will analyze by, by niche and by category where we want to enter into for the year and kind of start the process of implementation and meeting the needs of those customers. Right. We, I never want to approach it from the perspective of like, Hey, I want to do this or, or like, Hey, this company's doing this. I, let's do that. That's not the right approach because you don't know the advantages of what the, that company has. And it's not like what I want isn't necessarily what's best for the uh, best for the company or best for the customer. So um, a lot of it's like just knowing the industry and being in it every day. I would say the majority of our business uh, employees here work out and love, love the gym. And so they're in it. They can see what everyone's wearing at the gym and we're always talking about it. And so I think those, those things come into play um, in determining like what would be next. Um, and there's, there's not much more behind it. Like, honestly, it's just kind of like a feeling too. It's just knowing, knowing what's going on in the industry. 
Yeah, and when you when you have this, when we first introduced you onto this podcast, we had talked about this kind of athletes, the like serious competitors, but also just gym, you know, quote unquote regular gym goers, hobbyists. Do you find that that you need to almost take a different approach and comes to, to the marketing when there's this kind of wide spectrum of, um, I guess, how enthusiastic or how serious they are in that particular you know category? Because I think other listeners out there might have this similar situation where they have a wide range of, um, again. Uh, seriousness maybe of, of, of someone that could be their customer. How do you change the way that you market or approach the different members in that kind of spectrum? When it comes to how we're marketing, it's kind of been debated internally. Like my thing is staying on brand all the time. So we like Jim Reapers, uh, obviously a play on words. And then our logo is like a, a skull. And most of our apparel is, uh, most of our models and apparel, and it's more of a, like, I don't want to say it's aggressive, but the undertone is, is more um, hardcore, grimier, work ethic based. And we try not to deviate. Like we will stand behind our products and our quality and our, um, and our branding. And one of the mistakes we kind of did is we kind of um, let the, what's going on in the market kind of dictate one of our Mm. releases and it didn't do, it didn't do great. It didn't do bad, but it didn't do what I want, like, I guess what our internal expectations were. And when we did that, like a, a post-launch meetup, we kind of came to the conclusion that like, we kind of shifted off brand. And part of that was because the company is growing so quickly. Everybody's kind of, I haven't, I'm not sitting with them every day, everybody every day, kind of teaching them about what the brand is and what it stands for. So everyone's kind of bringing in their old work experience and kind of molding this brand image. That was part of the component. And the other component is that once again, it's not discussed internally, like what this brand means. And after that launch, we've kind of had long in-depth discussions about like who we are, what we're marketing to, what this brand stands for, where we want to go. Um, We use EOS internally, uh, which is entrepreneurial operating system, Mm -hmm. uh, which is derived from the book traction. And so utilizing like the vision and the um, traction components we kind of keep everything on brand. So I'll never deviate to market towards um, whatever something, some other brand would market towards. As we continue to grow, it's not to say we won't have an IFBB pro bodybuilder as an athlete, and we will have a um, general CrossFit athlete or influencer um, along the same lines, right? We, we might have both of those people, but they fit into our brand in some way. One of our guys is a, uh, above knee amputee, uh, green beret, and he's active duty, uh, today. And so like, that's one guy who's in our brand. And then we may have just, uh, somebody who's super in depth and passionate about fitness and they're a huge influencer on Instagram. And those two people don't necessarily align with each other, but through the brand of, of what Jim Reaper stands for, which is like hard work, nothing is given, everything is earned. It, it aligns itself. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I think this is an important message about how there might be just too much outward-looking, um, I don't know, direction that that entrepreneurs might take. Where you had mentioned that you have this uh, this this ethic, maybe that you have built within the brand, and once you start going off of that brand and looking at what the marketplace is doing and be influenced by that, that kind of led you guys astray. How, how, and how did that happen back then? Like how, how do you make sure that doesn't happen again? Like how do you make sure that you're focused? Uh, when there are, you know, these opportunities that are just right outside your circle, they're kind of taunting, hey, there's a chance for you to make some more money or grow your your brand more of you just changed a bit or diluted it a bit. How do you make sure that that doesn't happen? Keeping keeping the organization focused, like keep one, keeping yourself focused, like as an entrepreneur, as entrepreneurs, we all have the shiny object syndrome. Like once something starts to work, we got to get the other thing going. Like you got to have seven income streams, like all that stuff kind of happens. Like everyone thinks that. But the reality is true focus on one idea, one business, and like one mission is what will yield the deepest success. And what happened in that instance that I described was I kind of took my eye off the ball in terms of the brand because I was focusing on growth. So I just spent so much time looking for the next warehouse, looking for like more talent and kind of took my focus off product brand. And I didn't really like pay attention, not that I didn't pay attention, but I just kind of let it happen and move because I was spending time elsewhere, which is kind of where 
you know, establishing those brand guidelines and potentially hiring like a, a brand manager or director would have come key. Um, but to, but to not divert your focus would be number one. And then um, what like establishing your vision and communicating it to the team that you have so that everybody's aligned with what we do. So that if you see a brand being successful in their own way, and you might have a line towards doing the same thing, like you could take it as inspiration and you could see what's happening in the market, but just going and copying it doesn't mean it's going to work for you. And if you focused on your own brand and what works extremely well for you and put your, put your, um, all your energy into that and your team's energy into that, you could probably have your own success in your own way, um, depending on your own products. And, and so you can take inspiration from everywhere and, and everybody does, right. Everybody takes it from other companies and, you know, whatever inspires them themselves, but coming back to what the brand means and what the brand stands for, um, and pushing that through the brand is, is, um, needs to be top of mind. Yeah, and one one thing that you mentioned that you always want to stand by is that the products are high quality. They are they're objectively effective products. When you are selling something online, especially in the early days when you don't have reviews or you don't have the kind of brand name yet, how did you make sure that your customers understood that that there was a, a quality that cannot really be that might be at least harder to convey uh, online until they actually you know, put on that easily for the first time or like, you know, put on your equipment for the first time. How do they, how do you, how do you make sure that that, that quality is communicated? Yeah, you can, you can do it through creative assets, um, whether it's video or photo and, and try to, you know, explain and show why um, the product's better, you know, doing 3d modeling of your product, uh, taking close of photos, uh, descriptions, all those things are things you should do to try and convey it on the product page and, and do do as much as you can on your website the other thing is just ensuring that your product is great. Um, like we'll get, we get contact all the time to, to make it somewhere else for a better price, but it's like, that's not the point. The point here is to provide the best product and, and um, a best product will beat out decent marketing with a poor product any day. Um, and, and customers talk one of our um like we, we look for word of mouth. Like we want people to talk about our brand and talk about the quality. And so obviously having a great product and then ensuring that your returns or refund process is aligned with that. So like, if you don't like one of our products, you can just return it. We'll refund you hundred percent or we'll exchange it. If you have an issue with your product, we'll exchange it or re- refund it. Like generally you don't even have to return it. We'll just refund you. Um, we don't want there to be an issue. And then we'll always try to either root out that issue so that, you know, some, something could happen with the product where it doesn't work anymore. So one, you get a new one, two, you get a refund. And then the idea, and this was always um, kind of an ethos at bodybuilding.com when, when Ryan DeLuca was running the company is like, you take care of the customer first and then they'll take care of you. And that's like such a basic thing for everyone that everyone talks about, but truly implementing those values into your company and like living them um, is, is a different thing that a, a lot of companies try to, um, it's easy to sneak by on it to, especially as you, as you scale and get bigger, if you're not teaching those things down through, through customer service and operations. Um, but, but that's, that's probably one of the biggest ways is just standing by your word and, and being able to make it right for the customer. So they keep coming back. Awesome. So jimreapers.com is the website. I'll leave you this last question. What do you think is the sole thing that you wish you could spend all your time on that you could focus on over the next year that you think will have the biggest benefit to your, to the growth of your business? I would say the biggest thing would be people. I think as you start to scale your company, um, finding the right people, giving them what they need to be successful, establishing a great culture in your company and, and just investing into the right people is what what will drive um, the growth of your company, the growth of your brand. So yeah, definitely people. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience and advice with us, Rock. Totally. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.